0: Welcome back. I know that some parents are still signing their kids in, and uh, so uh, they'll be filtering in uh, here shortly, but we're going to go ahead uh, and get started. Uh, We are in Galatians, and so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Galatians. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, um, if you open your Bible generally into the very center, uh, you'll find the book of Psalms or Proverbs, and then if you go right, uh, Galatians, if you can see my Bible, is, is roughly... You know, four-fifths of the way through, and uh, and so it's toward the back. It's a very small letter, just a handful of chapters, and um, and um, so we're going to focus there. Uh, I remember as a new uh, believer, and even before I was a believer, if I would go into a small group Bible study or a church, I couldn't find the book or the chapter or the, I had no idea what they were talking about. And so it seemed like by the time I located everything I was supposed to, the message was half over and I missed it. And I just always felt foolish. And so I learned to use the table of contents and then to find it. So I'm just stalling to give you plenty of time uh, to locate the passage uh, that you need. To because it's important that we hear it. If you don't have a Bible, um, you probably have an app on your phone. Um, I recommend and I use the ESV Bible app. Um, Some people use an app called Uversion. I don't necessarily recommend that app uh, for a variety of reasons um, you can ask me about later. But I use the ESV app and um, Part of the benefit of that app is uh, Kristen Getty reads the Scripture out loud. You can choose between some voices, and I love her accent, and uh, so I appreciate um, her reading Scripture to me on a regular basis. Um, We also have a a Bible under the chair, under a chair near you. And so if if you don't have a paper Bible, I'd encourage you to take one of those home and and you can use that. A paper Bible um, has a way of helping you understand and hear and interact with scripture in a way that just a digital one can't offer. And if you do have one of those paper Bibles under your seat, um, it's on page 565. So that's an easier way to get to it. It's those gray Bibles. When I very first came to faith in Jesus Christ, I had come from an atheistic Um, immoral background. I had a very spiritual family into some new age things and into some different religious ideas, but we were very much not a Christian family uh, and would have been offended no one ever accused us of that, by the way, but, but would have been offended if you had described us as a Christian family. well, in the absence of of the gospel in the absence of scripture in the absence of truth um, in an anything goes family environment, um, there was an overwhelming sense of emptiness, an over overwhelming sense of purposelessness, hopelessness, um, it, as I was free to choose whatever decisions, whatever path whatever uh, direction I wanted to go in my life and my morality if there was no sort of standard uh, it created a vacuum that um, increased an emptiness a loneliness a longing a a sense of um, hopelessness and purposelessness a lack of peace but when I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ when I first heard it, and when I first responded to it, and the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and opened my mind, and, and, and when those truths first um, were embraced and just became a part of who I was when I believed in Jesus, it was so life-changing that I couldn't help uh, but tell everyone about Jesus Christ and the difference that He made in my life. Uh, I was Um, Able to lead 22 different friends and family members to faith in Christ um, in that first 18 months as a new believer and uh, just could not stop talking about Jesus um, because of the gospel of grace because of the gospel of forgiveness and mercy and um, uh, Jesus dying for me on the cross and his deep love for me. Uh, The John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The verse John 3.17, very rarely memorized, but just as equally impactful is that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That God deeply loves you and he loves you so much she is so passionately um, love loves you so much that he would not spare his only son, but that he would send Jesus Christ to die for you. Uh, I was so overwhelmed by the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God that me a sinner, an offender, one who deserved judgment, that God would save me um, The gospel in its purest form is powerful and impactful and life-changing and transforming. You will never be the same once you experience this gospel of grace. But a group of people had gone around after Paul in the region of Galatia, and after he had planted a lot of churches and shared the gospel with those churches, a group of people known as the Judaizers came into those churches after Paul left, and one by one, church by church, city by city, Iconia, Lystra, Derbe, Antioch, uh, and all those places, they came in and said, the gospel of grace is wonderful, but it's not everything. You also have to add to it works. You have to also become a Jewish person, be circumcised, follow the law of Moses. And in order to complete your salvation, Jesus is great. We love Jesus, but he's not enough. You have to have Jesus plus the Mosaic law. And it perverted the gospel. It changed it. And so Galatians is Paul This is his response and he fires it off quickly. And so our section today is chapter one, verses six through 10. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Father, we commit uh, this time to you this morning. We pray that you would bless the reading of your word as you promise in Revelation 1-3, that there is a blessing on those who hear the words and read the words of this prophecy, specifically contextually the book of Revelation, but in wider application to your completed word. We understand that there's a blessing. Just a blessing on the hearing of the word and the reading of the word. So I pray that blessing over all who are listening now that you would open our ears that we may hear, that you would open our eyes that we may see clearly and that your Holy Spirit would give us discernment. You say that the word of God is food to us. And so we pray that you would feed us by your word. I pray that you would use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, I recently read a a funny response. I don't know if you'll find it. I thought it was funny. But a a funny response to a a woman um, on social media who said, Why are so many passive men, um, why are they so attracted to and and often married to dominant, aggressive women? And one guy replied, um, who else is going to tell the waiter that they messed up my steak? Right? If they if they cook my steak wrong. Who else is going to do that if I don't have an aggressive, overbearing wife that's going to you know tell everybody what's wrong? she, she cleans up messes for me. Um, I'm convinced, generally speaking, and I'm not trying to stereotype everybody, but there are, generally speaking, um, those who thrive on confrontation and those who um, um, hate confrontation and avoid it at all costs. You may have experienced that as well. Contentious people. People who um, have the, the trigger set to the lightest sensitivity. Right? If you, if you say anything that they're willing to just explode and go into an angry situation... Um, Do you like confrontation? Are you a confrontative person? Do you uh, like to argue? Um, In my childhood, I don't know if I should admit this. I should probably omit this, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I'll use this version of it, not that one. (laughs) Uh, I always seemed to be the instigator, uh, and, and I would—I had big friends, friends who liked to fight, and and I liked fights. I but I didn't want to be in a fight, so I would be the instigator. If 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 I was walking behind somebody, uh, I would push them, and then before they could turn around, I would slip aside and they would just be faced with my large friend. And uh, and I like to see fights. <laughs> I like to start fights that I didn't have to fight in. Um, even now, in my, my kind of saltier moments, if someone is just right on my bumper, <laughs> uh, I'll just kind of let off the gas slightly. I'm not one of those people that slam on the brakes so that they, you know, I don't create that kind of a fight, but in a slightly subtler way... I'll just lease off the gas a little bit and I'll just check the rearview mirror just to watch the boiling level overflow. Now Julie knows this about me and sometimes she'll she can feel the pressure and she'll say, What are you doing? Who's behind you? What's going on? Are you gonna and, and I just like to see people in my flesh. I'm I'm, not, I'm confessing this as sin to you right now, okay? <laughs> but despite my honoriness, I've never been in a fist fight. Take it back, I got in a fist fight one time. Uh, a friend of mine, um, Nick Owens, great basketball player, came up behind me as I dribbled past him and did that move where he reaches behind my back and slaps the ball forward. And except he missed the ball and slapped me in my face. I turned around and shoved him, he shoved me back. I went to swing and it was like this long arc of a swing. And by the, I kid you not, by the time I landed, He had hit me three times in the face. Three quick jabs, and by the time my punch hit him, it kind of dribbled off his face. It was not a good fight. Um, I've never been in one of those square-off, toe-to-toe, boxing kind of stance fights, ever. Um, I would ask you to raise your hand if you've been in those, but I don't know that I want to know that. All that to say, in my natural state, I'm somewhat non-confrontational, but... The redeemed, filled with the Holy Spirit, Gibson, often confronts, often confronts. I will confront in grace and love, and I will confront when led by the Holy Spirit, when I see that there's an issue worth fighting for. And the gospel is an issue worth fighting for. Paul fires off this letter to a group of churches in the region of Galatia, and it's a contentious letter he's furious and and he he writes it quickly you remember last week we read Galatians 6:17 he said see with what large letters i myself write that's um Roman for this is bold, italicized, all caps, Galatians should be read in all caps, right? If you've ever gotten an email from somebody, they caps, underline, italicize, circle, if they do everything, uh, exclamation point, that's how the tone of Galatians. And Paul writes it um, shortly after he left and got back from the missionary, his first missionary journey uh, before even that the Jerusalem council in acts fifteen. Paul immediately sends this off, and it has this tone. It's a passionate letter. It's an example of when it's time to fight, and Paul is not shying away from it. So let's get back into the text and understand the issue here. Verse six, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The word he uses astonished is thalmatzo, And this word has the sense of astonishment or um, some sort of awe or fear. It's often used in the gospels when Jesus does a miracle and they were in awe of him. People were surprised. They were shocked when Jesus would heal someone or he would deliver someone and there was something miraculous that was taking place, or he taught something powerful and impactful and the, the hearers would walk away. thalmatzo, astonished, amazed in wonder. But it was also used as a rhetorical device in politics by the opposition. Uh, imagine a political party that catches their opposing party in some despicable act, and the um, the opposing party feigns or f- pretends like there's some sort of, oh, I'm shocked that you would engage in this sort of behavior. We're outraged. And the, they create sort of a public smokescreen of outcry, knowing full well that they probably do the exact same things all the time, right? But it's a rhetorical device used by poli- in politics by the opposition when they're shocked and outraged at something. Paul uses this same word, and it has um, a sharp point, this word. I'm astonished. Uh, it, 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 read the sarcasm. I'm, I'm incredibly surprised that you tasted of the beautiful, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and that now you're turning from that. It's a it's a, a word of wonder how could anybody, having truly accepted Jesus Christ and the grace, and when the, the bondage of sin was broken and they're set free and they're forgiven and they're adopted and they're um, initiated into the family of Christ and they're given an inheritance and, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they're overflowing with peace and joy and love and contentment and they're experiencing the, the same gospel that I expressed to you at the beginning of this message that when I got saved it was, like water in a desert it was like drinking from a fountain that never stops flowing when you're desperately thirsty paul is astonished and he says you quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of christ were the galatians deserters I looked up this morning, the penalty for deserting, um, uh, if you're in the military, there's a steep penalty. Uh, One man uh, was even executed, uh, I believe in the 40s, for deserting his post, for taking on um, a solemn vow and an oath to uh, to protect and to defend and, and to be assigned somewhere and to willfully walk away from your post is an act of desertion. And Paul accuses the Galatians of abandoning Jesus. What would cause someone to desert Jesus? Why would someone who has tasted of the gospel, who has been redeemed, why would they walk away from that? Listen, it happens all the time there is a movement that has picked up steam in America over the last 15 to 20 years called Deconversion or the Exvangelical Movement. You can find podcasts and blogs and all kinds of things dedicated to those who are leaving the church. The majority of these, I would understand as youth group Christians who came to Christ on pizza nights with skits and entertaining programs and were presented a gospel that sounded something like this. Come to Christ and you'll have heaven. You don't want to go to hell, do you? And they'll describe hell as a burning, nasty place away from God, but heaven is this, or you might have walked through a judgment house scenario where they crank the temperature of the room up to 95, and there's scary people, and they're moaning and weeping and groaning. I'm not trying to discount the realities of hell, but if you present the gospel in such a way that heaven is the optimal place that you want to go, you can appeal to someone's personal sinful desire to avoid hell, and all they have to do is pray a prayer? I mean, all they have to do is pray a prayer, and I I can avoid hell. Of course I'll pray that prayer. And so thousands upon thousands upon thousands, maybe even um, children of yours, grandchildren of yours, relatives of yours, maybe you know someone who came to faith in Christ and walked away from it, walked away from the gospel saying something like, it didn't work, or I tried Jesus, and he didn't work for me. I would respectfully say that Jesus is not a machine that works for some people and that malfunctions and doesn't work for others. The problem is often the way the gospel is presented. Ray Comfort in a very impactful book called The Way of the Master describes when you share the gospel incorrectly, the likelihood of a person falling away or engaging in nominal cultural Christianity becomes more likely. You can hear the wrong gospel. For example, come to Christ. You don't want to go to hell. Or come to Christ and you'll have a life of favor with God, highly favored and anointed, and and God will smile on you and there's a prosperity that will come with a life given to Jesus Christ. And it is an overly um, presented gospel that that presents too much uh, of the blessings of coming to Christ without the reality of the cross, without the reality of the judgment for sin, without the reality that Jesus says to pick up your cross and carry it and follow me, that the life of discipleship is a crucified life. The life of following Jesus is a crucified life. It's going to cost you something. And you can't expect a paved road ahead of you of just smooth sailing without any trials or difficulties or persecutions. We can present the gospel in such a way that avoids all that hard talk of Jesus and just allows people to discover that later, but only uh, to see that they often fall away. Any gospel presentation that appeals to our sinful, self serving desires and minimizes the reality of future judgment and the realities of persecution and carrying our cross and living the crucified life is a deceptive gospel. It's not the whole gospel. But there are other reasons that people desert Jesus. Some of them know full well what they're getting into. But think about Judas. Judas walked with Jesus as not just a disciple. There were hundreds likely of disciples. But on a particular night, Jesus prayed and fasted all night. And when he woke up, he said he, he called his disciples and he designated 12 of them to become apostles. Judas was one Twelfth of the apostles, uh, one uh, chosen out of hundreds of disciples. Judas deserted Jesus at the opportunity for money. John six sixty six. Some disciples deserted Jesus when they heard his teaching that he was asking too much, that the cost of following him was so steep. The rich young ruler, what must I do to get into heaven? And Jesus says, uh, points to some of the items in the law to reveal to him that he's, he's serving uh, in sort of an idolatrous way. And, and as Jesus points out all the different items in the law, uh, he said, I've already done all these things. What must I do? And Jesus, knowing that his idol might be this creed in his own heart, says, sell all your possessions and then come follow me says that that man went away sad because he had great wealth and possessions. He walked away and deserted Jesus because he had great wealth. He says, Paul says, you're deserting him who called you. So you're deserting almighty God the Father and walking away from the one who called you in grace And he says they're turning to a different gospel. You say, well, the, the simplest remedy would just be for God to allow more gospels, right? I mean, why couldn't all religions lead to God? Why couldn't all roads lead to God? Why couldn't there be 10 ways for people to have a reconciled relationship with God and to solve the problem of evil and to address the issue of sin and to address our um, sense of um, disconnectedness with God. If you've ever been, uh, remember days of when you were um, outside of Christ and, and you prayed and it just there was no connection between you and God. If you've ever read scripture and and there was just sort of this confusion uh, and, and you didn't understand or or you you um are in church and you thought i just I don't see why everyone is singing I don't have a sense of joy and peace and love for God that overwhelms me if any of those things have been true in your life um, then then you understand um, this sense of maybe you've uh, wanted there to be more ways to God, but you've never quite fixed in on the only way to God. If God had allowed for more ways, then why would he have allowed his only son to die on a cross? Why would he send Jesus described as the one whom I love my only son, my son, my only son, why would he allow Jesus to die if there was another way? If you desire to be reconciled with God, there is only one way to experience a right relationship with him. That's not my words. That's what scripture says. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one can come to the Father except through me. And this is what turns the world off from Christianity is that our world wants multiple ways to God. They don't want one way, an exclusive way. But when you pay the highest price for people's salvation, and it's the life of your own son, by allowing multiple other ways, discounts the sacrifice of the son, doesn't it? Jesus didn't have to die if you just needed to, you know, find yourself or uh, engage in some sort of new age spiritualism or go on a quest or a pilgrimage or pray five times a day. If there were multiple ways, it would discount the price that Jesus paid because it's God's gospel, because it's the only gospel he defines and initiates the terms of salvation. How arrogant of us to say, there's another way, and let me show you and add to that. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Adding something to the gospel is to create a different gospel altogether. These Judaizers came in and they wanted to add legalism to the gospel, they wanted to say, believe in Jesus, of course. Of course, believe in Jesus, but also follow Moses. And to do that, you, in order to be saved, you must add to what Jesus did, all these other works. You say, well, that was them. I don't know if we add to the gospel. Uh, syncretism is the practice of adopting uh, the local religious and cultural philosophical religious beliefs into an already established system. It's very popular um, in the Catholic world when they would go and colonize and all of a sudden the local gods would be transferred into Christianity quote unquote and, and would be added as saints. And so that's why if you go to South America, you find a very different um, flavor of Catholicism than you do in Europe that you do in Asia. Any time Catholicism was spread around over a period of time, syncretism would happen and it would be the addition, the adding of things. We do these kinds of things all the time. Let me give you some examples. We add in America a brand of gospel Christianity that's linked with patriotism, right? Uh Uh-oh. Did he say that? Right? We had, we had um, in generations before, an American flag on a stage and a Christian flag on a stage. And, and by law, the American flag had to be higher than any other flag flown. And so any church that um, provided a view for worship also included an American flag that was higher than a Christian flag demonstrating the uh, equality or the superiority of America over the gospel. And we suffer from this all the time. People, people in American churches feel like that to be a Christ follower is to be a part of a certain political party, is to be a part of a certain voting block, is to be a part of a certain set of activism kind of things, that essentially to be a Christian is to be an American. Well, what does that mean for the rest of the world? <laughs> What did that mean for people before America? What did that mean for someone 500 years ago that the gospel was null and void because there wasn't an opportunity to be an american right? We blend Americana and patriotism with Christianity all the time. Could you be extracted from America lifted up and placed in Europe somewhere, or in Asia somewhere, or in the Middle East somewhere, and would you still be as passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you still have allegiance to your heavenly citizenship more than your local um, country or, or your nationalism? We mix nationalism in the gospel all the time. Other groups add to the gospel. Maybe you've heard this before that you're not really a Christian unless you've had the second filling of the Holy Spirit, or unless you can speak in tongues, or unless there's some sign gift that accompanies your salvation, and so you should seek a second blessing. Have you heard that before? Anybody raise your hand if you've heard that. You hear these things that are added to the gospel. Jesus is not enough. Now you have to demonstrate that you're saved by a sign gift overflowing from the Holy Spirit in a congregational aspect. And in some way, we take what's not normative in Acts, but what is descriptive of the first coming of the Holy Spirit, and we want to take that experience and make it a blanket uh, description of normative behavior within the Christian church. And it's just not. At the initial coming of the Holy Spirit, His authentication was demonstrated with miraculous gifts and signs. It is not for, the, for us to participate in sign gifts. I'm not a non-cessationist. Uh, I'm not a cessationist. I'm a non-cessationist, meaning I don't think the sign gifts are gone and left with the, uh, the, the beginning uh, the, the end of the church age. I think that God still has room to use those and I don't see any passage in Scripture that outlines the ending of those gifts, but I think it's abused dramatically. I think that when it becomes a a normative expectation that if you're saved, if Jesus really indwells you, that you have to speak in tongues or you have to heal people or you have to do all these sort of miraculous things, then we add to the purity of the gospel um, something that was never meant to be there in the first place. And your salvation is doubted. Another example of adding something to the gospel is the Roman Catholic religious system. I I stopped calling it a church years ago because it has so polluted the gospel of salvation by grace through faith into salvation by grace through works. It is a works-based salvation system that merits grace, that is, if you get enough grace, you might just get to heaven. And the way you w- in which you get grace is you're baptized as an infant, and then you're confirmed, and then you take communion, and then you participate in Mass, and then you go into confession, and then you, you say so many Hail Marys, and you pray so many times around the rosary. And all, the- and all these things you're meriting. You're um, stockpiling grace into, as it were, a heavenly bank account. And if you have enough at the end of your life, if the scale is tipped heavy enough in your area of works, then your conferred salvation. And if you don't, uh, you might have to spend uh, several thousand years in purgatory, this made-up place. And if, then at that point, other saints can pray for you or to you or to a saint, and somebody can attribute to your account more grace until you work off your salvation. That is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's what drove Martin Luther to nail the 95 theses uh, on the castle door of the, the church at Wittenberg in 1517. That's the hope of the Reformation is that the gospel purity was retrieved. There are dozens of other things that I could point to where Jesus plus something and it ends up becoming nothing. Jesus plus Something equals nothing. That's the summary of Galatians. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. When you add something to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. If you add tea to water, it's no longer water but tea. If you add coffee to water, it's no longer water but coffee. If you add anything to the gospel, It's something altogether. Um, Let's get to the rest of the passage because Paul is worth fighting. This is an issue worth fighting. It's worth confronting. And so let's look at how he does that and why he does that. Verse 7, he says, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Listen to the way in which he elevates the gospel. He identifies some people, so he has identified the opposition an opposing party, a real person, a real group of people called the Judaizers. This wasn't a straw man that he was building up. If someone happens to say, this, these were real people that were really going from place to place. Imagine if I was gone one Sunday and a guest speaker came in and started to say to you, listen, if Gibson is teaching this, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, he's deceived. There is something more you need to do there's something else that you need to do to be saved. And he outlined something. And then he said to you, and I know this because an angel came and told this to me. If you were to give in to that, this would be the scenario that Paul is addressing. Paul elevates the gospel and, and he's going to do so in chapter two and the rest of chapter one, he's going to defend his apostleship. He's going to defend the gospel. He's going to defend how he came to understand the gospel But right now, he's just going to elevate the gospel. And he's saying, um, Paul elevates the gospel above man-made teaching. And he even elevates it one more level above even angelic authority. He says, if we preach a different gospel, then let him be accursed. If an angel appears to you and miraculously, gloriously preaches to you a different gospel... If anyone preaches, let them be accursed. And he's going to defend the gospel and how he received it. That's going to be in the coming weeks. But let's just dwell there for a second. Um, you might think, well, what does he mean by this sort of angelic? I think I would be convinced if an angel came to me and revealed to me something. But to do that is to misunderstand categories of angels. You know in the scripture, um, we operate in sort of the spirit. There's a spiritual reality. Now, there's a spiritual reality, a spiritual component, an unseen world of angels that um, are constantly warring. Now, some people go off the deep end, and everything is a demon, or everything is you know overly spiritualized. I'm not doing that, okay? But there is a reality that we have to acknowledge that there are categories of angels. Two, there are angels, and then there are fallen angels. There are good angels that still serve God. And then there are fallen angels. Um, there is an allusion to a third of the angels fell with Satan. Whether that's exactly identical to a th- one third precisely, um, I don't know. Um, apocalyptic literature can be tricky sometimes. But among the angels, there are fallen and good, good angels and fallen angels. Among those who are fallen, demons is what we would understand them. They are arranged in powers and principalities. And you read Ephesians 6, right? There are classes. There's a structure to the opposition, just like there are structures to earthly armies. Um, There are leaders and, you know, sub-captains, and all these kind of things within the fallen angel world. There are bound angels and loose angels. Uh, we talked about this when we got to Jude and other places, that, that the bound angels are those who um, cross the boundary into... I don't want to go into all this. This can get a little squirrely, all right? It's probably above where I want to go today. Um, suffice it to say that angelic deception is a real thing. Um. In 1823, Joseph Smith reported that the angel Moroni came to him on numerous occasions, revealing to him the location of secret golden plates that could not be translated in their Egyptian hieroglyph, but were transported to America and that the um, American Indians had possessed these or at some point had had these. And so when he arrived, um, the angel Moroni showed him where these were. Uh, and there were three other witnesses, called the three witnesses in um, Mormon doctrine, and then the eight witnesses, all of these des- described an encounter with this angel Moroni. Uh, Joseph Smith had an encounter that led him to be supernaturally able to see these tablets, or these discs, plates, translate everything, and write the Book of Mormon, and then they were whisked away and had never to be um, found or um, able to be looked at again. This started the Mormon church. And Moroni is is the one that they attribute that to, that this angel from heaven came and preached a different gospel, and it has led an entire group of people away. Latter day Saints are an enormous uh, movement around the world. Uh, they have an enormous social media presence, but they preach a different gospel. They preach a different gospel altogether. It's an example of what Paul says, even if an angel comes and preaches a different gospel to you, let him be accursed. He's emphasizing that the gospel is our heavenly father's gospel about his son. It's not my gospel. It's not your gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. It is God's gospel that has been revealed and verified He closes this passage and he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man? Verse 10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? That just gives us a hint that the Judaizers were going around saying, Paul is a people pleaser and he's preaching somebody else's man-centered gospel. That's why he's a people pleaser. And so Paul ends this section with a refutation of that charge against him. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, right? What was Paul's former history? He was a Pharisee persecuting the church. He was not a Christ follower. His former way of life was centered in people pleasing, of advancing in the ranks of his religious system. We're going to get to that in the coming weeks. But for for now, suffice it to say that the gospel is beautiful in its purity. It needs nothing else. The gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. You don't have to add to it anything. And if you are in the habit of adding to it on the gospel road there are two ditches the ditch on the right is legalism the ditch on the left is license if there's grace i can live any way i want to license to a permissible way to live any way you want to those two are deviations from the gospel if you if you if you pull toward the license side and you deviate from the gospel and you say, I can live however I want to, and Jesus is always there to forgive me, read Jude, right? I've written to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints because some have crept in among you and have used the gospel as a license for sensuality. Right? Paul is defending against legalism, the other side of the ditch. Some have crept in among you, it could sound just like Jude, some have crept in among you and they have perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ saying that in addition to receiving Jesus by faith, now you have to have a short haircut, <laughs> now you can't have tattoos, and now you can't play cards, and you can't dance. and you We add to the gospel all these weird things that are not a part of the gospel at all that promote legalism or license, and they're both perversions of the gospel. The gospel is simply this. It's the substitution of Jesus for you. That your sin was serious enough that Jesus had to die on a cross for it. Sin is destructive. Sin is hurtful. Sin is painful. When we confront sin in a person's life, it's because we we take sin as seriously as Jesus. God took sin seriously. The gospel provides forgiveness of sins. Your greatest need is forgiveness of sins. I talk about this a lot, but when um, Jesus met someone who had a physical need or a a demonic possession or some sort of a situation where they needed something from Jesus, he often said, your sins are forgiven before he even met that need. And it left a person, it left me often wondering why, why, that's not why they brought the, the, um, paralyzed person to Jesus. Why did he say your sins are forgiven? Because your greatest need is forgiveness of sins. Do you agree with that? Most people don't in the world. Most people in the world say, I'm a good person. I don't need forgiveness of sins. But the Christ follower knows that their sin was enough to separate them enough that God would have to crucify his only son who crucified Jesus. It was God, the father, God, the father crucified Jesus because sin was serious. And that we needed the forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel and it's purity. The substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for your sins. And the result of that, the receipt that God accepted Jesus's payment on the cross was the resurrection. Jesus was raised to life showing that his sacrifice was accepted. By God. The payment was made and it was received. And so, as a result of that, we are adopted into the family of God. By His Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father, Romans 8, right? We have a relationship with God the Father in intimate terms. That at any moment, Hebrews says, we can come into the throne room of grace and expect it find grace in our time of need. That's adoption as a son or a daughter of Christ that you can run into the throne room of God at any moment covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And God doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ that covers you like a robe that you're wearing that hides your sin from God because it's been dealt with at the cross. That's beautiful. Our identity in Christ as a redeemed, made new, adopted person in Christ, that result from the gospel is beautiful. The promises, the presence of God, that He gives you the Holy Spirit to dwell within you, all of those blessings come from the pure gospel. But when you distort that, you get none of that. That's why it's worth fighting for. And that's why Paul straps on his armor so to speak, and writes the book of Galatians to protect the purity of the gospel. Is there any way in which you've added to the gospel, whether it's legalism or cheap grace? I can live however I want, or I have to live a certain way in order order to be pleasing to God. Listen, the gospel says you're pleasing to him just on the basis of Christ's work of atonement. When he looks at you, he can't be more pleased with you he sees you as, as redeemed and righteous because of what Christ did and you can add what could you add to that hey i showed the church i showed it to the church 42 times this year jesus doesn't that add something to god's pleasure in me nothing you can add nothing to that and it's worth fighting for father we thank you for the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel it needs nothing there is nothing we can do to embellish it. There is nothing we need to do to clean it up. There is nothing we need to do to help it along. No pizza night, no smoke and mirrors, no um, emotional repeating of uh, phrases and worship that would prepare a person to be emotionally touched by the truth. The simplicity of the gospel is its beauty. Jesus Christ and Him crucified was sufficient to redeem sinful men and women, and to transfer them from the realm of darkness into your wonderful light. We praise you for that. Oh God, help us. Help us when we try to add to Christianity our own rules, our own regulations, uh, at, at the expense of the purity of the gospel. Help us to be smart enough and discerning enough to, to, to know the difference between issues of obedience and discipleship once we're in Christ versus what we need to do to come to faith in Christ. The gospel is free. And the gospel is potent and pure. Help us never to tamper with it. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.